From the Bristol Herald Courier, I'm Delena Matthews, and this is On the Record. This week on the record, Hubert Eastep, a retired FAA approach control operator at Tri-Cities Airport, recalls in an interview with Robert Sorrell a crash that occurred on October 1st, 1976. Two German pilots based at Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina were training in the Appalachian Mountains and crashed into the ridge of Holston Mountain. Both men died. Eastep was working that day at the airport. He recalled the conversation between approach control and the pilots and what led up to the fatal crash. So were you working at the control tower at Tri-Cities Airport? When that I was happened? working approach control. Uh, and we have uh, had two radars in, uh, in approach control. And... Uh, I was working the west sector, and a fellow by the name of Jim Marks was working the eastern sector, which uh, controlled those airplanes. I was sitting next to him, but uh, I didn't actually control them. Okay, and so were there just the two of you working in approach control at that time? Well, no, in approach control, there was about four people working, but the, the two of us were on the, we had two scopes. What we did was we divided the uh, the radar sectors down the center of the runway, and at that time that was runway 22, uh, been 220 degrees, so I think it's shifted now, uh, but uh, back then it was runway 22, and I was on the scope that handled the uh, center line of runway 22 in the west sector, and Marks was uh, on the east sector, and we were sitting side by side. Okay. So um, in those positions, were you, uh, I guess, monitoring both civilian and military flights? Uh, well, yeah, you could say that. Uh, the way we operate, because when somebody has to call the shots, is who's number one and who's number two. And we set the system up to where the east sector was the primary control sector, and uh, uh, they determined who's going to land first and second. And so we have to communicate verbally uh, as to who's going to run the, uh, what procedure we're going to run, what's uh, sequence. Okay. Jim called the sequence, that's what I'm trying to say. So I have to listen to him uh, as to, he tells me what say what uh, sequence I'm going to get. Um, can okay. you just describe a little bit, I guess, on what you are actually doing as part of approach control? The, the, what happened that morning is uh, the flight of two came in from... Uh, Sumter, South Carolina, which show Air Force Base. Yes. Atlanta controls them, and uh, Atlanta Center controls them, and brings them down to to 7,000 feet. At 7,000 feet, uh, Tri-City Approach Control has responsibility. So Jim took a hands-off, radar hands-off, uh, on these two aircraft from Atlanta Center. The airplanes were on a training mission. They came up and made a... Best I remember, uh, Jim turned them on for an ILS straight-in approach. Uh, they came in and made a little approach over the airport. 
and stay down the approach control frequency instead of going to the tower. Made a left turn out and started back up towards Bristol, uh, being vectored by, by uh, the east sector. And uh, the lead aircraft called and asked, uh, told, us, told him to cancel his IF. He wanted to cancel his IFR and go with VFR direct back to Shaw. And at that time, Jim told him that, uh, he said, are you sure you want to cancel because there's fog over the mountain? And I'm not, I don't know for sure, but I think the guy was still IFR because he had to be in the fog down that low. Anyway, he says, yeah, he's going to cancel, and uh, he did, and he turned south uh, towards Shaw, and at this time, he was up about Abingdon, and uh, he came over Holston Mountain. He didn't hit the mountain, but uh, he hit a tree that was on top of the mountain. Had he hit the mountain, he would have crashed uh, up around Bristol. But he crashed in, uh, on the south side of Holston Mountain. And, uh, of course, we have to write reports on it. And uh, I talked to the sheriff at that time, who was uh, Carter County Sheriff, who was uh, uh, a fellow by the name of Papatonio. And uh, he had gone up there with the rescue squad. And he said he hit the tree uh, right on the top of the mountain and it flipped his airplane down and he crashed on the south side of the mountain uh there's there wasn't much to find i think it just tore the airplane all the pieces the other guy the other airplane went back to shaw okay uh, that was about the extent of it uh, do you know if the other airplane actually saw the other plane crash I think he, they were in formation. I think he was probably behind him. And I'm sure he did see what happened. Okay. Because apparently the guy was coming in low over the mountain. And I just don't remember that host mountain is 42, 48 MSL feet above sea level. And uh, Jim gave him those figures. And there was no response, I don't think. So I think he was right on top of the mountain, right above it, and when he hit that tree. The other guy didn't have any problem. He was probably behind him and maybe a little higher. Do you remember what the weather was like at that time? Yeah, we had uh, we had foggy conditions. Uh, um, we were... We were still IFR, so we had less than three miles visibility. Uh, the cloud level, I don't remember. It was uh, what the exact weather was, but the Weather Bureau could probably give you that information. But it was definitely down over the top of the mountain. So do you think the weather actually contributed to the crash? Was it too foggy for him, I guess, no, to see the mountain? No, it was I'm not sure the weather contributed to it because the guy wouldn't have been that low, but I think he, and this is pure speculation, I think he was still IFR when he canceled. Uh, uh, 
Can you explain what IFR and VFR mean? Uh, IFR is instrument flight rules, where you you fly on instruments. Uh, VFR is visual flight rules. You see and be seen. And uh, when you're flying IFR, you fly uh, on odd and even altitudes. When you fly VFR, you fly odd and even altitudes plus 500 feet. Okay. So, you know, we're... Uh, FAA is giving you guidance if you're IFR and providing your separation. VFR, you provide your own. Okay, so with VFR, you're pretty much flying on your own without any kind of direction? Yeah. Or, okay. So he was coming off of instrument flight rules, and he wanted to transition to visual flight rules, meaning he's going to provide his own separation. Okay, with that kind of terrain of Holston Mountain and the weather, do most people fly with... IFR? Uh, yeah, most most of the traffic, uh, you know, above uh, six or seven thousand feet, uh, is uh, the majority of it is instrument traffic, where the FAA is providing you separation between other aircraft. They're also giving you information as to VFR aircraft that are out there that want to be separated. They want to be seen and they want radar assistance. We, the FAA provides that too. Okay. Uh, but they don't have to talk to us. That's uh, entirely up to them. Mm -hmm. If the visual flight rules wants to talk to us, uh, they uh, uh, have a uh, transponder and they, they uh, are told to squawk a certain frequency on the transponder, and that way uh, the radar controller identifies them and uh, gives them radar separation. Okay. How long did you work with the FAA there at the tower? I, I worked in Atlanta Center for uh, five years, and I came to Tri-City and worked up there for 25 years. And at that time of this crash, I was a controller. And about when they went on the strike, uh, I'd, I'd uh, become a supervisor. So I worked about uh, six or seven years as a supervisor. Okay. So how many, um, I guess, crashes there at Holston Mountain have you encountered while you were there? Let's see. Well, it went up, uh, had a helicopter crash up uh, above uh, Abington, Virginia. We had another interesting one that uh, we were working. Uh, I fly from Shaw, and uh, they, they had a training area over, oh, I guess, 50 miles west of Tri-City. And... Uh, we we had one over there in the training, and they didn't go to. They didn't talk to us when they went into the training area, strictly VFR. Then all of a sudden, uh, he pops up and wants uh, a direct flight to uh, to Shaw, and we gave him a direct flight to Shaw. And uh, a couple of hours later, the electric company calls in. I don't remember many of the details, but they called and wanted to know if we'd had an airplane over there, and we told him, yeah. 
and uh, he said, well, one of them uh, hit one of our power lines and left his uh, gas tank over here and tore up our power lines, so we had to trace him down. Finally found out who he was, but uh, you know, some pretty interesting stuff went on. But uh, we had a crash over there that uh, as I was working one night in the uh, airplane was flying with a bomb on it, an atomic bomb about the size of a baseball. He overshot the runway and turned over on runway four coming in from the southwest and uh, flipped, ran off the runway and flipped over. It was got kind of exciting for a while. We found out what was going on. Uh, let's see. Yeah, we had a controller one day. I was working as uh, a supervisor. And uh, this guy's name was... Uh, well, I think uh, Lonnie Deckard. Lonnie was uh, over in Kentucky somewhere. He was just uh, a new pilot, and he was flying a pretty hot airplane, Cessna 310. And he called me. He was supposed to come to work at uh, 4 o'clock, and he called me from Kentucky and said he was having trouble with his airplane. And that 310 is a really hot airplane. And I said, Lonnie, you're going to get killed if you keep full of these airplanes. And he said, well, you cover me. I, I, I'm going to be late. I said, okay, we'll take care of that. So Lonnie came over and was uh, coming inbound from uh, up over Bristol. He crashed in Virginia, got across the line. And... Uh, Anyway, uh, the controller turns around. He says, uh, I've lost the target. I said, well, what's going on? He said, I don't know. He just disappeared. And he said, it was Lonnie Deckard. And I said, well, mark your scope. And so we got a helicopter called one of the hangers, got a helicopter to go out. And uh, we had the exact point where we had lost radar contact, but it took about two hours, I guess, to find him. He'd torn his airplane all to pieces. Of course, it killed him, and uh, uh, that, that was a bad one, I remember. I try to forget this stuff. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, being in it that long, it, it, it kind of started taking that's a toll on you. Mm -hmm. So, so much you can never, never forget. So when a plane was lost from radar, what would you do as a controller? Well, the first thing you do is you mark the last location you saw on that scope. And we put uh, an indelible pencil on the scope and just mark the dot there so we know where the last sweep was that hit that target. Now we know that, you know, it's not gonna, the airplane's not gonna be at that point, but because depending on its direction and what happens, and uh, for instance, Lonnie uh, wound up, uh, I guess, west of the 
point where he should have been. And uh, the reason we found out later was he had lost his left engine. And on a Cessna 310, it was, it's kind of hard to tell if you lose an engine which one it is. And apparently he had, uh, when he lost his left one, he had given full throttle on the right one and it turned him to the left. So he was off of the center line of the runway. That's why it took so long to find him. And it just and it tore the airplane into so many pieces that uh, it, it was hard to find. But I called the helicopter down at uh, Appalachian Flying Service and they asked them if they would be kind enough to go out and try to find him, and they were. So I sent three controllers out to go out with him to look for the airplane. They looked for well over a half hour, couldn't find him. They came back in, wanted to, they had one more seat. They wanted another controller to, or another spotter to come out. And uh, so they went back out with a full load of spotters and finally found him. Uh, he hit so hard that he had a uh, plastic calculator, which uh, we call them computers. Uh, it's used to determine how long it's going to take you to go from point to point. And if it's a piece of round plastic, he had it in a, a nylon jacket and it tore a round hole in his jacket. It hit so hard. So uh, he never knew what hit him. He did call uh, about a half a mile before he got to the outer compass locator, or outer marker, we call it and ask how far he was from it. So he was having trouble at that point. But uh, I don't know, it's, uh, I don't really like to think about those. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that's all I wanted to talk to you about today. Honor Record was made possible by David McKee, David Krieger, Delina Matthews, and Brian Woodson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.